following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, I don't think it's any surprise to any of us to acknowledge that we live in a day and an age of grandeur, and the world around us loves big things. The bigger, the better, right? And, and especially when it comes to works, when it comes to grand works or grand fame or, or things of the like, right? We open our newspapers or we turn on the TV, and, and what do we see? What is placarded in front of us? Are, are men and women who have done great deeds, great works, whether it be because of their fame, whether it be because of their amount of money that they're able to give for others, whether it be by contributions they've made to society. And so we are, we are thrown up with, these, with these, these men and women who have great, who have great um, intellect and who have great gifts in these things. And this even comes to us in the church in some regard, right? We, we think of those around us who do great things for the Lord in, this, in the way of the great preachers of the past or those who have written books, right? Or maybe the big churches who are able to contribute large sums of money to missions, right? And we, we have these things before us, and, and these are good things in and of themselves. These are good things, Gifts of God. Money is a gift of God. A large church is a gift of God. Gifts are, are a gift of God and a grace of God. But the temptation that comes with some of these things is that if we're so focused upon the big or the grand or what the world seems to esteem as, as what constitutes those who can do good works, is that it seems to diminish the smaller everyday works of life. Going to work day by day, right? Family worship in our homes, right? These things are not, we don't turn on the news and hear of people doing these things and laboring day by day. But it can, and so, and so when we just focus on these bigger things, it can, we need to ask ourselves, how is it that we view our work to the Lord? Do these, does it ever creep into your mind that, the smaller things of life are just as important to God as the bigger things. That the small everyday tasks that we partake in and that we, and that we work hard at are accepted by God. Or do we fall into the pit of thinking that our small endeavors don't matter to the Lord? And that it's only the big and the grand that He, that he accepts and approves of. Well, here, as we come to verse 9 through 12, Paul gives us, really, a, uh, in some part, a theology of work, but also he is, he's drawing out his prayer from the end of verse 3, and he's applying what it looks like to love. He had prayed that the Thessalonians would abound more and more and increase in love, and so now he's been applying it at the beginning of chapter 4. In, in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul talked about sexual ethics, right? How to love your neighbor, to love one another, to love God is to live a sexually pure life. That, that sexual sin is not just damaging to the individual, but it, it taints the way we view others. 
whether, whether it takes something from them physically or it just mars them in our mind that they are a man or a woman made in the image of God and they deserve our respect. But now as Paul moves on to verse 9, he now moves to a work ethic. How are we to love God and to love our neighbor when it comes to our work? And so I think what Paul is trying to say to us this evening what he first said to the Thessalonians, and no less he says to us this evening through the Spirit, is that the practice of love in your day-to-day work is a witness to the world and acceptable service to Christ. That your practice of love in your day-to-day work, the small tasks, the things that don't get put up on the screen and, and exalted, but the day-to-day work is a witness to the world and an acceptable service to Christ. And I'd like to look at this in two points. First, the reality of love in verses 9 and 10. The reality of love or what it means to be taught by God. And secondly, the practice of love. A life in light of being taught by God in verses 11 and 12. So if you look with me to verse 9 and 10. Paul begins this way. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So Paul opens with this great commendation of the Thessalonians. Now, this isn't anything new. He actually said this to them in chapter 1, commending them for their love. But now he's, he's, he's getting into the more practical side of the letter, and he's, he's commending them for their love, saying that I really have no need to write to you. I don't need to instruct you to love one another. Because that that word has already gone out. The evidence of their love for the people in Thessalonica and for the surrounding cities has been heard by Paul and the rest of the missionaries from where they are, whether they're in Athens or Corinth. But the word of their love has gone out. And Paul's commending them for it. He's encouraging them. But then he comes to this very interesting word. He says he doesn't need to write to them because they've been taught by God. Now, the the word is interesting here because this is the only place in the New Testament where taught by God is translated as as this one particular word. But I think if we look at at Isaiah 54, which we just read, and also how Jesus uses it in John 6 when he quotes Isaiah 54, we get a broader context of what it means to be taught by God. But let's let's start with what it means to not. What What does this phrase not mean? Because I don't know if, if you've run into people like this, but some people will say, well, I'm taught by God. I have the Spirit. I have my Bible, right? I have no need, to, I don't have no need for teachers. I have no need to go to church, right? I don't know if you've run into people like that. But they're, they're out there. There are some people who think that that is sufficient. But that's not what Paul is talking about. In fact, it would be interesting if, if that's what Paul meant because he contradicts himself right here in the very letter because he is teaching them and he's, he's prodding them forward as to how they are to live their lives. But the way that Jesus uses this phrase when he's quoting Isaiah 54 is he says this. He says, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And, in the, and if we kind of combine that, that with the context of Isaiah 54, we come up with this idea that it's the new covenant. The new covenant and in particular the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Spirit being poured out upon all believers and the work of the Spirit drawing people to God. 
When Paul talks about the Thessalonians being taught by God, he's, he's talking about the fact that God has drawn them to himself by the Spirit. That through the proclamation of the gospel, the Thessalonians have responded to the gospel because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But secondly, it means to be taught by God in that it instills the preeminent feature of a Christian, which is love. The preeminent feature of a Christian is love, the crowning trait of love toward God and love toward fellow man. Paul is pointing to the fact that they're evidenced of being taught by God because they love others, that a person is not a Christian unless love is evidenced in their life. Now, that love may be weak, that love may be immature, that love may, may doubt at times, but nevertheless, it is present in some measure. So Paul is commending them, and he's exulting in the fact that God has laid his hand upon these Thessalonian believers, that he's called them to himself, that he's given them the gift, the New Testament gift of the Holy Spirit, thus enabling them to love God and to love others. But, and thirdly, what it means to be taught by God is that to see God's grace working in their lives and to acknowledge that everything that they have and they know is from God. And I think the, the best example of this is, is the Apostle Peter in Matthew 18. Right? As soon as Peter confesses who Jesus is, what does Jesus say to him? He rejoices and he says, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood have not revealed this, but my Father who is in heaven. So what, uh, another feature of being taught by God is not only the preeminent trait of love toward others, but also that God is opening the eyes to see truth. That God is opening the eyes of the heart to acknowledge truth and to have faith in it. The Apostle Paul is exalting in these things because these are the, characteristics, these are the traits of true believers. And he's being thankful to God that he sees them in the Thessalonian church. I think just to step back and look at it from a, a biblical theological perspective, it's, it's interesting to see that the gift of the Spirit parallels perfectly with the, with the first giving of the law, right? We have, you have the exodus out of Egypt by Moses. Fifty days later, the giving of the law on tablets of stone, right? And then you have the ascension of Christ. Fifty days later, you have Pentecost. So you have this, this, this parallel of, uh, of, of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the giving of the law on tablets of stone, but then this time, the, the, the greater measure of a gift in the, ta- in the law being impressed, the teaching of God being impressed upon the heart of the believers. Because what is the sum of the whole law? To love God and to love neighbor. The whole sum of, of every single law that God has given is that they would be, they would be, the, they would be the, the emissaries of, of God. Well, that was, that's what Israel's job was to do, right? They were supposed to be a light in the darkness of the nations. And just in that same way, New Testament believers are to be a light in the darkness of, of, of the world in which we live. Paul first points, he encourages them and commends them for their love because they've been taught by God and in it he rejoices. And I think there are two points of application we can take from these first two verses in, in the reality of, of the love that God has lavished upon us. And the first is this, to ask yourself the question, do you see the love of God in the gift of the Holy Spirit? Do you see God's love and His grace? And from a few angles, 
First of all, in just his faithfulness in sending the Spirit as he promised, right? How many years went by? How many years is it between Isaiah and between, and between the, the pouring out of the Spirit? Six, seven hundred? We have this long period of time, and we can even go back further and see glimpses of the blessings of the new covenant that have now come in full in the gift of the Spirit. Do you see the gift that the Holy Spirit is by God and the love that he has given to us in sending the Spirit to us? Secondly, do we rely upon that gift? It's one thing to acknowledge that we need the Spirit, but it's another thing to live in dependence upon the Spirit. When we come to tasks of day-to-day life, when we come, this is why we, we have a prayer of illumination. Because we need the Spirit to open our eyes. We need the Spirit to understand the truths of God's Word. And when we come to the day-to-day tasks of life, do we realize that we still need the Spirit to accomplish those tasks, to do them in such a way that pleases God and gives praise and is a witness to those around us? The Spirit shaping our attitudes. The Spirit bringing to to our memory the truths of Scripture that we've memorized and we have pondered and meditated upon. So not only is the Spirit a great gift, but we need to rely upon the Spirit for everything of our day-to-day life. And secondly, notice Paul's encouragement here to the Thessalonians. And we should ask ourselves this question, how often... Do we encourage one another? Would, we consider, would you consider yourself an, uh, an encouraging person? Someone who would come beside fellow believers and say, Hey, brother or sister, I, I see God's grace working in you. And it, and it is great joy to see that. And to, and to then encourage them to press forward. Right? Do we encourage one another? Are we helping one another? To do this in our marriage as husbands and wives. To see the need of it. And husbands, I would particularly lay this at your feet. To think that you are the primary source of encouragement to your wife. Because we we leave the house in the morning, most of us. right? Most husbands in here, we leave the house and we go out to our jobs. And at our jobs, if we do a good job, if we do well, we might get a pat on the back. And we might get a promotion. Right? We have, there's a camaraderie there among, among employees at our job and our coworkers. But it's not the same with our wife. Our wife is at home laboring diligently with the children or laboring diligently with her own tasks. And so it's important, there's a, and so it's important for us to view ourselves in that manner. And, and are we coming home and are we making sure our wife knows that we appreciate all that she does? Because we are, are the primary source of her encouragement. And on the flip side, wives, do you encourage your husbands? Do you let them know how much you appreciate them for what they do, to the, for bringing in an income to the home and for leading the family? Children, do you do this amongst yourselves? As you are, as you are working in your studies and as you're working at, at, at all of your learning and, and just growing, do you see your, your siblings doing something well and do you come alongside them and encourage them and, and, and implore them to follow through. And lastly, in the church family, do we do this amongst ourselves? Do we encourage one another? Do we think about how we might spur one another on to good works and how we might be an encouragement within the church of God amongst our brothers and sisters? The encouragement will always go further than just correction and criticism. And we, sh- we need a healthy balance of that. And I think Paul lays before us a, a good example of that. 
Paul will later go on to correct the Thessalonians. But he, he makes sure that he points out the places where they are doing well and encourages them. Well, Paul not only describes the reality of love to them and how he rejoices in the fact that they are being taught by God, but he then gets very practical in the practice of love in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, he says this, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business, to work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Paul then kind of shifts gears and he now applies this. He's encouraged them, he's commended them for their love and how they even have their love for one another. And then he applies it to the day-to-day tasks of life. The first thing he says is this, to live quietly. What does it mean to live quietly? Well, not in a brash or an irritating way. To be of calm and, and quiet temper, right? Would someone consider you calm and quiet of temperament and, and, and joyful to be around? To be peaceful behavior. Someone who's not seeking to fight. Someone who's not a brawler, who's always looking to, to pick fights with others. Now, there's time for correction, sure. But again, it all must be done with love. So Paul says to them to live quietly. Secondly, he says that they should mind their own life or to attend to their own business. This means that they're not consumed with everyone else's life. They're not consumed with meddling in the affairs of everybody else around them. But they're, they're quietly working at the tasks that God has given them to do, that God has laid before them to do. They're not constantly... They're not, uh, what would you say, uh, busybodies. They're not running around looking for gossip. They're not running around trying to fix everyone's problems or be that person that people cringe when you walk through their door. But no, they're, they're, they're minding their own business. They're minding their own life. They're being faithful in the things that God has given them right now. To live quietly and to mind your own life. And then thirdly, also to work with your own hands meaning to be diligent, to be diligent at your work. Paul's not only exhorting them to to keep their eyes in their own lane and to keep their eyes upon their own business, but to work hard at it, to be diligent in work, not idle, to not have an irresponsible attitude toward obligations for their work. Paul's kind of giving this this sum of what it means to, to walk day by day, quietly, through this life, working hard for the kingdom of heaven. But then it brings us to ask the question, okay, Paul's been talking about work. He's been talking about our attitudes toward work and how we are supposed to go about it. But what is work? What is work in and of itself? Because we look at our broader culture, and most of them would say work is building a career, right? Building a career, climbing that corporate ladder, What's the first thing anyone asks when you walk into a room of strangers? What do you do? What do you do for a living? You know, we almost are defined by what we do, in a sense, for the better or for the worse. And so, but what is work? What, is it, what does it mean to work? And I would, I would posit to you that work is everything that we do. Work is not just leaving the house for a nine-to-five. Work is not just sweeping the floor. Work is everything that we do in this life. What was, what, was, what was the command God gave to Adam in the garden in paradise? Work and tend the garden. 
Work and tend the garden. Fulfill the dominion mandate of, of bringing all things under subjection to the dominion of God, to the reign of God, as, as Adam and Eve were set as God's vice regents upon the earth. Right? To work, to do everything in this life with an attitude of, of submission to God, with an attitude of, of love to God, that, that our work is, is, is important to Him, and that our work constitutes everything that we do, whether it's we're studying, whether it's we're making a meal, whether it's we're working late into the night doing something for, for pay. This all constitutes what Paul is talking about when he's speaking of work, because Paul is not writing to just preachers and churchmen, and he's not writing to people who write books. He's writing to ditch diggers. He's writing to, to homemakers. He's writing to husbands and wives and children and carpenters and writers and philosophers and all the whole mix. He's writing to the whole gamut of, what, of, of people in their work. And so Paul's encouraging them that whatever they do, and he'll say this later, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all to the glory of Christ. That we should see every aspect of life, our waking up in the morning, our making breakfast for our kids, our, our, our reading the Bible with our families. This is all work that furthers the kingdom of God in some way. It may be small, but it, never, but it is not insignificant that our work matters to God. But not only does our work matter to God, but our work also is a witness to the world. It is a witness that we walk respectfully before outsiders. In verse 12, Paul says to behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. That our work as a witness, that they've been taught by God and they should apply that knowledge. That as a witness, that idleness does not befit Christians. Right? It is, there, are, there are a few people in society that we might disdain more than those who are idle. That those who can work but will not work. Secondly, it's a witness to the church because idleness brings disrepute. Excuse me, it's a witness to the world because idleness brings disrepute upon the church. And it's to exhibit a difference between Christians and the world. Right? That Christians should be the best and most upright members of society, the most hardworking, advancing, advancing godly causes for the betterment of, their, of those who are in their neighborhood, in their county, in their city. That Christians should be among the foremost people working for the betterment of their neighbor. Paul points to the fact that their work is not, only is not only acceptable to God, but it is also a bold witness to Christ. But it brings us to ask this question, that how is it our work is acceptable? How is it our work is acceptable to Christ? Because if you're anything like me, most of the time we go about our, our tasks, and at the end of it we look at it and we say, we look at all the imperfections. It's riddled with imperfections. It's riddled with our sinful attitudes. It's riddled with, with things that we wish we could take out. So it begs the question, how? How is it that our work is acceptable to Christ? But I would posit this to you, that it is the work of Christ that sanctifies our work. To think of it in terms of the blood of Christ not only, the work of Christ not only cleansed us from sin, and not only brings us more and more into his image, but, but the work of Christ has also sanctified every deed we've done from here on out. That by, his, by Christ's work, his, his incarnation, right, his sinless life, 
here on earth, upholding the law, perfectly loving God and man throughout the entirety of it. His going to the cross, his taking upon our sins upon himself, bearing the full wrath and brunt of God, that his work of, of, of his resurrection, of, of showing that the bonds of death, though they clung to him for a moment, could not hold him, and his ascension as he is seated at the right hand of God, that his whole work sanctifies our work, that his blood cleanses our imperfect work, thus making it acceptable to God. That our day-to-day tasks are important to him because he delights in his children. He delights to bless his children and he delights that in, in faith when they do anything, that he is, he is glorified by it. He is glorified by it and delights in it. So Paul lays before us this evening the reality of God's love in teaching us through his Holy Spirit, the blessing of that, it, that it is to have the Spirit to love others and to love God, but also the practical outworkings of that, in that the Spirit then sanctifies, the work of Christ sanctifies all of our work, all of our labor in everything that we do. So as we consider these things, as we, as we go into this week, as we are about to walk out the door this coming week to go to work, and we think that, we think that our work is insignificant, or we are washing dishes this week, or we are making a meal this week, or we are, whatever we are doing, teaching our children, know that whatever we do in faith, and when we do it with an attitude of love to God, He delights in it. He delights in His children's work. He is pleased by it. He, is, he's, he has sanctified it. And that the most menial tasks of life, done to His glory, He exalts in. And it is our joy to do them. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the innumerous blessings that we have through the work of Christ. That through his work, our work is is real and it is important and it is sanctified unto your glory. Lord, we pray that as we go through this week, Lord, that we would do all of our tasks with an attitude of love to you with an attitude of love toward our neighbor and our family, with an attitude of of service and gratitude for the great work that has has brought us out of the kingdom of, of death and sin and transferred us to the kingdom of light. Father, we pray that that we would dedicate ourselves to you this week to work for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom, and that you would take these offerings and that you would dedicate them to the furtherment of your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.